Hello, everyone, and welcome to Next Off, a Victor Breeze podcast. I'm Lawrence, joined by Chris and Jake. We are a podcast discussing all things Circuit Lincoln Douglas debate, although this time we'll be talking about the traditional NSDA Nationals Tournament. And we publish new episodes every other week, or at this point, just kind of whenever we feel like it. And this is our lucky 13th episode, where we'll be talking about the NSDA's topic, um, our thoughts about it, the arguments, as well as some of our um, tips for competing at nationals. Uh, but before we jump into the content, we just want to remind our listeners that we have a Google form linked in the description where you can submit feedback or suggestions for future topics, which we plan to get to during the summer. Finally, thanks to Victor Brees for sponsoring this podcast. We are a Summer Debate Institute and publisher of debate materials, which you can learn more about at victorbrees.com. All right, we'll discuss the NSDA Nationals topic after this short break. All right, so before we jump into the topic proper, I think, Tice, you had something that you wanted to mention briefly about the voting procedures for this topic, and I tend to agree with your thoughts here. Yeah, so my very small quibble, I think the um, new topic voting procedure is very good. My little change I would make is I think we should be doing ranked choice voting. If you look at the vote breakdown for this topic, for example, it seemed that there was a pretty strong majority for one of the two tax topics. Um, that seem to split the vote with one another, I would assume, uh, or at least a very strong majority against this topic, I would, I, would have, I would have guessed. In a ranked choice world, I think we probably would have ended up with one of those two topics and not this one. I don't think there are very many people there that are very excited about this one. There are definitely some people that are excited about it, but I think they're excited for all the wrong reasons. And I yeah. will talk about later why I think even the most generous reading of this topic won't produce the type of debates that I think people are wanting this topic to produce. Um, but I strongly agree. Like, I think it's uh, this is definitely a, uh, what appears to me an example of splitting the votes. Um, I don't think taxes are anyone's favorite topic, but I would have ranked them as far superior to this topic. Yes. So just to clarify how that works, because I don't think we have either, like an instant runoff style ranked choice voting would mean if you submit a, a ballot, you submit your rankings one to three. And then presumably yep. if you let a, the tax area more than the public health area, you probably rank those tax topics one and two in some order. And then exactly. Yeah. And if nothing gets 50%, you eliminate the last place uh, topic and redistribute the people who voted for that topic. First, you redistribute your second place votes to the remaining topics, and uh, one of those will then have 50% uh, support. So at the very least, you make sure that more than half of voters don't get their least favorite topic, which I think is an improvement. Yeah, I think it also has the benefit of making it easier to put topics into buckets, you know, the way the new, the three topics per slot system works. Because at the moment, you could either create three topics that are really similar or three topics that are really different and put them in a group but if you create a system like nationals this this uh, year, where you have two topics that are similar and one topic that's different, now you've got a vote splitting problem. And so with, with the IRV, you would have less of an, a need to make sure the topics are like equidistant from each other thematically. And so there's more free choice in terms of you know, giving the topic committee room to make uh, decisions on what topics to put where. Yeah, that's a good point. And the absence of ranked choice, I think it makes sense to either make them extremely different or make them all in the same area, having two and one just, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yep. Yeah, worst of both worlds yeah. sort of thing. One other minor thing is, I wonder of the coaches and students that voted for this, so it, it seems that there are 634 coaches and 819 students that voted for the resolution. 
I wonder how many of them aren't attending NSC and Nationals in any capacity. It feels a little strange that, you know, should you not have any students competing or you yourself are not competing, that you would have this much of control over the topic that's debated at Nationals. I don't know. That's, that, yeah, that seems fine to me, actually. I think the bigger problem is how, how small those numbers are. Last time I asked, asked the NSCA about this, it was somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 kids do LD debate every year, and just over 800 voted for a topic. Yep. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, it makes sense that this particular topic gets lower votes than others because, again, it is far more selective in who attends. I think, what, 300, 400 kids max attending NSC Nationals and LD? Also, this past year, we just had 20,000 LDers research the importance of high turnout rates on the compulsory voting topic. Uh, so yeah, one would think yeah, we would have in which... than, uh, like 4% turnout. <laughs> To be fair, there was a little bit of a bump. There was a little bit of a bump in voting after that topic. And then it went <laughs> crashed back down to earth for uh For, for, for Voting oh, for okay. topics thought to be compulsory. Yeah, for, it, it, went, it went from about a little over 3,000 for September, October, up to almost 6,000 for the next three topics, and then back down to 800 for nationals. I, I, I imagine that that probably just broadly follows voting trends. But uh, anyways, the, the topic itself yeah. uh, for NSC and nationals <laughs> is resolved. A public health emergency justifies limiting civil liberties. So we'll do our typical spiel. We'll talk about background issues on the topic, affirmative and negative arguments. But before we get into that, I just want to spend a few seconds ranting about how much I dislike this topic. And I'm sure Tyson Nails also have uh, thoughts in a similar vein. So I dislike this topic for two reasons. One being the more obvious one, just like this topic is half biased. It is very difficult to think of a very strong negative argument that suggests that there uh, you know, in general, could not be a public health emergency that could not justify limiting some civil liberties. It's, it seems like a very high burden to clear. It's not really clear that anyone really thinks that that could be true. I mean, sure, you got some like really hardcore radical libertarians out there, but that is like a very small portion of the pool and a very small portion of the academic literature, um, at least in terms of the quality academic literature. But my second complaint, I think, is a little deeper, which is that I think that this topic is an area that is super ripe for debate. Like if you look at the public health literature, I mean, there are tons of excellent papers in this area and tons of people talking about public health emergencies and civil liberties, especially uh, given the context of COVID, the recent spate of academic and scholarly literature about this has skyrocketed. And a lot of the articles are getting at really interesting and nuanced points. But I just don't think that those are the types of debates that are going to occur given this topic, because the topic is just like, here's this general principle. It's like, is it true or false? And the answer is like almost certainly true. And then, like, there's a secondary debate about, like, well, given the truth of this principle, you know, like, what are constraints on the application of it? Like, what types of public health emergencies justify civil liberties? What civil liberties can be limited? What institutional guardrails should be in place to prevent there from being abuse of limiting these civil liberties? Um, what are the contexts? When and where can we do this? Um, you know, how do we ensure that the that the these limitations of civil liberties are temporary? But they're almost always about the like application of this principle and not about the principle itself because the principle itself seems so uncontroversially true, at least to most people. And then like the real debate in the literature is just about these sort of what I would call implementation questions, I would guess. But they're not the type of questions that are just super relevant for uh, this topic in particular. And so I think like a lot of people were being like, oh, this is like a very timely topic. There's something salient about debating this given COVID, which is like true, but it's just like not getting at the type of debates that COVID was producing, which is like, for example, how does, what is the intersection of public health emergencies, civil liberties and democratic values? Well, like those debates do arise, but just like, they're not gonna come up on this topic because like that has nothing to do with the general principle. So that's why I just like the topic. Yeah, I'm not a big fan either. I feel like the area seems totally fine. I think I agree that there's plenty of literature on conflicts between public health and civil liberties. 
Uh, I think the issue is if you're attempting to provoke debate on that topic, and I've, I've seen this before, I think it often comes up, especially in like the, the nationals topic slot in past years, where there's this idea that if you just make the topic as vague as possible, that will ensure that there's like good broad debates about you know values and principles and so forth. And I, I feel like that rarely works. You know, if you, if you make a topic really vague, all you encourage is debate over like which examples are relevant towards proving such a, a general principle. And I, I feel like this topic has, has done that. Is they've attempted to make a good topic, not by clearly spelling out a principle, but by just like removing enough necessary details to hope that the debate is forced into something um, more vague. Yeah, I'm for all those same reasons, not a fan. I, I had a little bit of like a backlash backlash moment, I guess I can I can talk about, which is right when this topic came out, there were some some folks, some coaches in particular on Facebook who were like, this is an absolutely undebatable, impossible topic for the negative. How could you like ever think uh, there's any examples? And they would talk about things like, if the affirmative gets to say, like you have to wear a mask at CVS, like how could you ever negate? And a lot of that comes down to, I think, a like a probably an incorrect reading of civil liberties. But that reaction kind of proves, I think, why this debate is going to be terrible at nationals, which is, it's just a question of the scope of what is restricted. And the AF is going to make that really expansive. And the negative is going to try to make that really narrow and like very serious rights, uh, assembly, voting, things like that. And that just will be the debate. Um, and that's not a good discussion. Yep. Yeah, I touched upon this in my topic analysis where I write that as a sort of component of the second reason I dislike this topic, that what will invariably happen is that a lot of the debate will come down to definitional disputes over what constitutes a public health emergency or what constitutes civil liberties. And then debates about the sort of like, well, you know, like what civil liberties can be violated if the affirmative proves that like one of them can be violated in some circumstances, is that sufficient to affirm if the negative is proving that all the other ones can't be violated? And, it, and then this debate, I think, just devolves down to like definitional disputes and like interpretational issues. And just like, they're just not the type of things that as Nails was talking about earlier, like really facilitate these more broad values questions, which I think the resolution is attempting to get us to. And But uh, whatever, we're stuck with what we got. Um, here's the topic. So uh, some background issues about the topic. Um, as I mentioned a second ago, and I think the other two are in agreement here, a lot of this debate is just going to be like, what is X thing? So I don't know, what is a public health emergency? And, and, and for me, like there are a bunch of different definitions. I think that the one that everyone gravitates to is the one from the World Health Organization that's like something like, it's an occurrence or imminent threat of an illness or health condition caused by bioterrorism, epidemics, or pandemic diseases. And then the, the definition is a little bit longer, but basically it's just like, it is an emergency in the sense that it overwhelms traditional healthcare capabilities. And that does seem like the most plausible definition of a public health emergency to me, or at least the most intuitive. Because if I thought of you know what the words meant in together, like that's what I would think. But then like the problem arises in like a bunch of things that have been declared public health emergencies that don't really seem to fit within the narrow scope of the WHO definition. So for example, like opioids is a public health emergency in the US. It's not really clear that um, it's the type of thing that has so overwhelmed public health capabilities in the way that we think of it, overwhelming public health capabilities. It's like a short-term like spike in, in uh, diseases that like um, are like so time sensitive and urgent as opposed to like this long protracted drawn out crisis that is threatening some states' medical facilities. And then you've got a bunch of authors that are like obesity is a public health emergency, even more authors that are like um, global warming is a public health emergency. And then like at this point in time, it's just like, I don't know, like there are a bunch of scholars that define a bunch of different things as public health emergencies. And it was, I don't know, that seems to introduce some. 
difficulties. There was a, a New York Times op-ed about two months ago that said we should declare racism a public health emergency. Oh, oh no. That, um, yeah, and it's like, and the problem is, is like under the most loose interpretation of what a public health emergency is, like that, that almost certainly does count. I mean, like there are obvious like, ra- like uh, health effects as a result of racism yes. and it does, you know, it like meets all the criteria, I think of the most broad definitions. And so like only more narrow limited definitions could, could uh, fight back against it. But there's like no good non-arbitrary reason to think that those more limited definitions of public health emergency have to be the ones that we use for this debate. And so, yeah, I, I don't really know if there's a good way to solve that problem. So my thoughts on the matter, firstly, I, I think that to me, if I had to pick which which is more intuitive, I would say the more narrow definitions seem like the ones that strike me as more accurately reflecting the topic. Like, while there are many public health related issues to opioids, obesity, and in fact, racism, none of them strike me as the thing that I would I would think of when this, this topic is using the term public health emergency. I, I, I think that there's like a, an issue of like imminence or timeliness to it of not just like this is a general thing that society is dealing with all the time, but we're in a particular state right now where there's an elevated risk of disease. And so I, I think, you know, as, as Larry pointed out in the WHO definition, the two examples that really come to mind are bioterror attacks or, you know, naturally occurring pandemic diseases that break out, I think are the two things that I would say are uncontroversial examples of public health emergencies. And then the second thing I had to add about this, and this is gonna be true for the other half of the topic as well is, these are largely terms I would suggest defining as terms of art. And so public health emergency, I would be defining as a unified phrase. You can find definitions that yes. use all three of those words in conjunction and define them as a term. Likewise with civil liberties, I'd put that together and define it as a phrase. Because a lot of times with these uh, terms of art that you see in resolutions, if you define them by just defining each word separately and putting them together, that's how you get an accidentally overly broad definition. Like, ah, this thing is related to the public. This thing is related to health. This thing is causing an emergency. You put that together and all sorts of things could be public health emergencies. A nuclear war could be a public health emergency because it's an emergency that hurts the public's health, you know? And so I think an easy way to make sure that the topic stays appropriately limited is to make sure you're defining those words in conjunction as a unified term rather than mix and matching definitions of each word. Yeah. I mean, that all makes sense. It is just not clear that like, if we were assuming like good faith actors and let's say a scholarly journal trying to have a, a real debate about this, like I agree that that is generally what you'd gravitate to. Unfortunately, like the sort of gamesmanship of debate and like the incentives to debate to run to the margins, like I don't think provide very good guardrails for preventing apps from just running away with whatever definition that they want to say. And that's just going to make the topic even broader than it already was. And I think skew away from the central clashes that the topic is attempting to to make us focus on. Well, now admittedly, even with good faith, I'm not even sure that alone would uh, be enough to arrive at a good consensus definition of public health emergency. Cause like even assuming we stay pretty limited to say pandemic disease, the threshold for that isn't exactly clear. Um, and who's measuring that, right? So COVID seems like a clear pandemic, but like for how long is COVID a pandemic? What's the threshold at which COVID has like subsided enough to call it no longer a pandemic? Mm-hmm. How bad does a new disease that breaks out have to be to counter the pandemic? Just like the next strain of the flu. And so it's very easy to debate, you know, that like the, the WHO definition used the, you know, phrases that are like imminent or, you know, like imminent threat, for example, or use the word substantial risk. Those, those terms like imply some threshold, but like there's no numerical threshold for substantial risk or imminent threat. And so there's still room even within that definition for the after the neg to diverge on, you know, like, well, just how often are we talking about like every disease that shows up or once in a, a century sort of thing. Yeah. 
not easy to answer. I mean, I I think it would be best if both debaters just kind of unilaterally disarmed and were like, we agree on like the most plausible definition of this topic. Let's have a good debate from there. But it's not clear that, well, as Nails pointed out, that's even possible, but it's all, but I think it's even more clear that no debater has a strategic incentive to do that. They just all want to run to the margins and talk about whatever. So whatever, have fun with that. Um, The next word is justifies. I actually think that this word could potentially be important on this topic. And maybe you all don't agree with my assessment, but here's my take on it. So I think that this word potentially could obviate several common negative arguments, particularly those that are about unintended consequences of limiting civil liberties, or maybe predictable consequences of them. So I take it to be the, I take it an example to be something like free speech. Like I, I would say that, for example, one is ex- justified in exercising a wide range of civil liberty or wide range of uh, free speech um, rights before, like up until the line of like harming someone or like inciting violence or something like that. But like, for example, like I, I would say that you're like justified at like yelling a curse word at someone that cuts you off in traffic, but you could have like strong pr- prudential reasons for like not doing so, like maybe fearing fisticuffs on the highway from the person that you like yelled at. And it doesn't seem clear to me that the mere like unintended consequences or predictable consequences of exercising your rights means that you are no longer justified in exercising those. Or for example, like a state, um, let's say someone invades the state and it seems like the state is justified in exercising its self-defense rights by deploying a military to counter the incursion. But then maybe the military generals advise for prudential reasons that like doing so might unnecessarily escalate the situation. And so we might be better suited to apply a different response. And it's not clear to me that those sort of prudential reasons against deploying a, a reactionary force means that you're no longer justified in exercising your self-defense rights. It just means that other considerations could outweigh. Um, and so it doesn't seem clear to me that, you know, the, the affirmative is tethered to defending, for example, a bunch of unintended consequences of implementing civil liberties, just merely that there's some underlying justification that exists um, to limit them in some circumstances. I think it's a reasonable argument to make. And I think it's one that will probably jive with a lot of uh, judges' predispositions, at least at nationals. I think that the sort of judges you get at the NSDA national tournament are often predisposed to believe that, for example, like the act just doesn't have a solvency burden on most or any topics, uh, at least in LD debates. And so if, if you make this argument that suggests, you know, neg prudential arguments about the inefficacy or you know, backlash stemming from public health uh, restrictions, or just, they're not relevant because the topic is about like the value of public health versus the value of civil liberties and that the neg is making that sort of a non-issue. I think a lot of judges are probably going to be receptive to that. Not all of them, you know, obviously you, 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 you get a, a range of judges at nationals, but I think that the judging pool is often more predisposed towards those sorts of arguments that are just like, look, the, the neg ground is like civil liberties violations themselves outweigh, not that civil liberties violations might prudentially undermine the efficacy of public health uh, measures. Yeah, although it goes against my typical instincts, I actually do think that that interpretation is potentially closer to what we're trying to get at with this topic anyway, right? So I'm just really quick fired up, you know, uh, the dictionary, Merriam-Webster, and the second uh, second definition here is to show to have sufficient legal reason. And that does seem to me to be kind of what the topic is about. Is a public health emergency a sufficient reason for a government to legally uh, restrict rights? That seems to be the question. And maybe that's then like a very reasonable interpretation for the F, even if it doesn't, you know, comport with what we normally do on most topics. Yeah, I certainly think a lot of Fs will like give themselves a solvency burden because it'll be like our advantage is that restricting civil liberties like empirically does clamp down on like disease spread or something like that. In which case, like I do think the affirmative is tied themselves to defending 
the efficacy of such restrictions and whether or not that is crucial to clamp down on public health emergencies. But I think that you could decide an affirmative case to avoid that. Um, and I think obviate what I perceive to be the stronger negative arguments, truthfully, like, I mean, I guess we'll talk about this in the next section, but like, it's not clear that like your libertarian right to infect other people and see is like all that strong, but like a lot of the literature about like trust, democracy, stuff like that, like pretty solid. And if the affirmative just doesn't have to debate those, I mean, I think it tilts the topic even more in favor of the AF. Just a, a second thought, potentially going the opposite way as to how one could use the word justify maybe in a way that favors the negative is I do think it implies that the, the public health emergency itself is doing something like this thing that wasn't formally justified has now become justified by the public health emergency. And so I think that's an easy way for the negative to limit out um, innocuous examples of civil liberties that the app might want to point out is just like very minimal infringements is if, for example, you pick something that you thought was just like so innocuous as to like the government can always restrict that inside or outside of a public health emergency and that it's that's always okay, then that strikes me as not being a case of the public health emergency justifying it. And so like, maybe you thought, for example, like the government can always require individuals to wear masks or always require individuals to follow certain other health protocols like washing your hands in buildings, right? Like it doesn't seem like the government needs to have a public health emergency on the, on the public health emergency on their hands to require you wash your hands before walking into the, the hospital or something like that. In that case, it doesn't seem like, even if it, that is justified, it's not being justified by the public health emergency. It's something the government is already justified in doing. Yeah, maybe we can bring in the conversation about civil liberties here too, because I think there is a way of combining that with, I think, some pretty common definitions of civil liberties to make that case pretty strong for the neg. And I think that's probably the definitional issue where most of uh, most rounds will come down on is exactly what this, what what set of rights are we talking about when we say civil liberties? So my, my inclination is that there's not a particularly concise and clear definition about what civil liberties are, because if you Google the phrase civil liberties, like you'll get a bunch of different definitions. Yeah. So for example, the one that Nails cut is from an article called Reconciling Civil Liberties in Public Health in the Response to COVID-19. And it defines it as a range of activities that citizens are or should be generally free to engage in without government restraint, including things like freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, and so long. Uh, or, and so on. And some civil liberties may be given legal protection through a range of legal sources, most fundamentally through entrenchment in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And, you know, that I think demonstrates that a lot of these discussions of civil liberties occur within the context of a particular country's legal framework, that being an example of Canada. But like, if you look at the list of civil liberties in the US, I mean, they overlap some, but there's also some divergences as well. Yeah, so. there's, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, the best definitions I've found for the negative, and I think the one that gets closest to what I think the conflict the committee was going for uh, would be is one that says that there are rights that are that cannot be interfered with without due process essentially is and i've seen that in a bunch of different places and that seems to be getting at i think what the core question is here these are rights that otherwise cannot be restricted uh, without some you know legal process to strip you of that right think voting for example but there's a health, public health emergency is that an exception to that due process rule that seems to me to be the, the, the real topic that we are trying to get at here. Um, and those types of definitions would strike me as as good for the negative to, uh, to go for then. Yeah, I think something along those lines sounds about right to me is there's some legal protection and public health is a good reason to override it. Again, like I, I agree that like in general that the topic would be better suited if we were just debating about these sort of general principles and like we could facilitate a debate about like does the general concept of civil liberties 
uh, or like what is uh, like how do the general concept of public of civil liberties interact with public health emergencies? But unfortunately, I, I do think that a lot of these debates are going to devolve down to like, is this a legitimate example of a civil liberty? Like, well, does it is it mentioned in like some international law document somewhere? Is like in the UN, uh, you know, like um, UN human rights document to like, is it is it a U.S. civil liberty? Like, and I think that's where a lot of debates are going to go, uh, which is kind of unfortunate. The good news is like this topic has been debated before, at least in a, in a more broad sense, because like both the 2014 and the 2017 or maybe the 2018 nationals topics were about um, privacy or other civil liberties versus national security. And so like, I don't know, the fact that those topics got along fine and no one figured out what the, what the heck a civil liberty was and still managed to have debates about it. Yeah, it's reason for optimism, I guess. I was just, if I had to pick an example that I think probably is most representative of uh, the the clash in the revolution and seems to show up most in the literature it is just quarantine. Obviously, uh, debaters in 2021 are probably going to have uh, a wealth of personal experience to discuss quarantine. And as it so happens, even before the, the COVID outbreak, if you read articles about civil liberties and public health prior to the COVID epidemic even starting, quarantine was just kind of the front and center example. And so not to say that the topic is just quarantine, but if you have, have to pick like a thing that's just sort of uncontroversially representative, I think of the clash between the F and the neg is, is quarantine. And actually a, a helpful delineation that I think is made is like between quarantine and isolation, where isolation is like, if you have symptoms of a disease, then you can be restricted. So like you're already a, like a definitive public health hazard, like you specifically, whereas quarantine is like in general restricting a group of people that might potentially contract the disease. And obviously that requires a bit of a weightier burden because you have no particular reason to think that any one person is already sick and, and harmed others. All right, let's talk about some F arguments then. I don't know, so it seems to me that in reality, the affirmative could really shift a good portion of the burden of proof onto the negative because it just seems so intuitive that sure, at least some public health emergencies could provide sufficient legal grounding to restrict some civil liberties. Like, come on, like who, who's really arguing the opposite? And so here the affirmative, I think, could be doing themselves a favor by arguing, it's not my job to prove that, you know, these particular public health emergencies justify these particular civil liberty restrictions, but it's like much more incumbent upon the negative to justify why civil liberties are so inviolable and so absolute and why no, or at least no general category of public health emergencies could ever clear the bar of rising to the threshold of providing sufficient reason to restrict at least some of these civil liberties. And I think when it's phrased that way, like, I think it's real hard to be negative because I think it's pretty easy to like poke holes in the AF case being like, well, you know, does it really justify this particular limitation of a civil liberty in this particular instance? But when it's like much more just like, it's now incumbent upon the negative to provide a strong reason to think that civil liberties are so inviolable and so absolute, like that seems really tough to be negative to me. Um, and so I actually don't really have any like good thoughts about how to be AF other than just like, that's what I would do is if I were AF, I would just shift as much of the burden of proof on the negative they could in like the framework and then just like read some contentions that are about like why principally civil liberties are capable of being violated or at least limited in some circumstances like i don't know that's what i would do especially because even just like maybe to give examples of civil liberties that we also think are important but also pretty much across the board have already have other restrictions on them you know so freedom of speech pretty weighty and important civil liberty but as Lawrence is referencing, we have restrictions on that. Like you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Anything that's going to incite imminent lawless action is not okay. I can't like threaten you <laughs> and like, <laughs> like hold a gun to your head and make a statement and be like, ah, that was my freedom of speech to tell Lawrence he had to give me his money or die. 
you know, uh, like the restrictions on, on freedom of speech exist. Freedom of religion is important, but I can't just like murder Chris and be like, my religion compels me to murder Chris's. I'm sorry. Right. So obviously there's this, this balancing act that always exists with any of these things that there there's some point at which the, the liberty uh, has restrictions upon it. And it's just a question of whether this is one of them. Uh, and so negative arguments are just like these things can never be restricted, I think, are, are going to be kind of difficult. Yeah. And like it's not clear to me that the affirmative is better off like picking a particular moral framework and like sticking with that as opposed to just like being a much more broad, just like general like convergence of different moral theories suggests that like regardless of whatever your background moral assumptions are, like you could think that there are good reasons for limiting civil liberties. Like you don't have to be like a pure communitarian to think that, for example, individuals don't have the right to infect other people. You don't have to be a pure utilitarian to think that like sometimes some more matter than, than less, um, you know, like, and, and I think like, once you take it to the sort of broader level, like it, it just makes it so clear that regardless of whatever particular moral theory you adhere to, that it's it's probably going to give at least some space for limiting civil liberties. I think that'll be a big mistake that a lot of apps make, actually, the instinct to just jump straight to uh, util with the topic, because that seems like just a really easy way of, of breaking down this for the um, breaking down the debate for the app. But it opens up. Lawrence, all of those arguments that they had, those prudential arguments, you called them, that you think are the best at the same time, even though it's like the most obvious framework, I would think, that most apps will use. Um, I think you're probably right. Something that's a little bit more like a nationalist framework that you would never read anywhere else. That's kind of like, what exactly is it, right? Depends on how you look at it, like which speech you're giving, uh, which round you're in, it can look a little different. One of those frameworks probably makes more sense. Yeah. Like my app framework my senior year was literally just consistency with governmental obligations. Like it meant literally nothing, but the topic was so vague that like, uh, yeah, obviously whichever side demonstrated that their side of the resolution, you know, national security or digital privacy was most consistent with the obligations of governments was going to win. And I was just like, yeah, I don't know what else to say. I was actually about to make a very similar uh, comment to Chris is I actually think I probably wouldn't use utilitarianism or any vein of that as the value criterion for the affirmative. I mean, it, it has the intuitive appeal, admittedly, of being the most aff-loaded criterion, no question. And often you want to pick the criterion that most favors you were you to win it so you can win the contention level debate. But I think both because of the nature of this topic as well as the nature of nationals as being you know more valuesy and more traditional in general, I think having strategic leverage at the contention level is not going to be so important here. Uh, so much as having a, a framework that seems intuitively plausible, especially to a relatively traditional judge. And so maybe lead with something that's already kind of sticking out a more middle ground. And util is obviously just like running, you know, as far as you can towards the general welfare side and away from individual rights. And it might just be a lot farther than the app needs to go. My impression of the literature when you know, just like looking at the, all the medical ethics articles and stuff on this is that they all more or less say the same thing uh, which is just like a vacuous assertion that medical ethics has a lot of values. We care about all of them. And uh, on the one hand, it, honestly, I was just kind of like disappointed at the quality of argumentation that, that existed in these articles. Like as, as far as you know, like good, interesting philosophy goes, I've, I've, I've left thinking much less of medical ethics as a field. <laughs> they, they don't say anything <laughs> like very qualified people. Like like ten ten author articles with like highly qualified experts in the field will just say nothing but vacuous truisms. They don't seem to take any controversial stances. 
Um, what they will say is they'll often say, look, look, there's, there's various competing values. We care about all of them. We care about rights. We care about the general welfare. We care about reciprocity, transparency, democratic input. And they just list a bunch of values and like all of these matter. The important thing for medical experts is to weigh between them. They don't explain how. Um, now, Vacu says that is, it is A, a consensus view that a lot of authors write about. So you can find tons of cards about it. And B, honestly, kind of like a, a thing that sounds persuasive to a, a non-expert. And right? it's like, we value lots of things. We should care about all the values. How can you not think that equality and general welfare and rights all have value? And so I would honestly, if I were the affirmative, I think be looking more towards something like that. Like there's just a plurality of values we have to weigh between them. I, I've, I've seen frameworks like that before. I remember on the, the organ um, procurement topic on, what was the term? Opt-out, um, presumed consent. We had a framework like that. It was just like weigh between values. And I think just saying there's a bunch of values and we should weigh between them favors the app a lot. Because the app doesn't have to say, like, like Larry was saying, that public health emergencies always justify all restrictions of liberties. Just like, look, sometimes this one value is going to outweigh others. And sometimes the other one outweighs that one. But if it outweighs sometimes, then the app wins. Because sometimes there will be emergencies fair enough. Uh, and so that, that would be the direction I would think. If you're, if you're um, looking for frameworks for the affirmative, it's just like medical ethics has all these values. We should balance them. And that means sometimes this particular one is going to weigh others. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think at nationals, and Larry, you're the expert here, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. But in my experience, being the person who's able to claim the moral high ground of being the reasonable one in the room is super effective. And if the app takes that approach that Jacob just laid out, we need to weigh between values, um, et cetera, the negative only really has sort of like extremism on the libertarian side to to run to at that point. Like a, a nuanced balancing test is not going to be what most negatives are. And so reasonable affirmative who wants to weigh things versus unreasonable libertarian neg, I think national judges are going to gravitate towards the AF. Whereas if it's just two extremists in a room, who knows what happens for the AF. Yeah, so I definitely agree um, with that assessment. Although I will say that a lot of affirmatives are get really lost in the uh, you know, trees for the forest sort of stuff, and they will never bother pointing out that they're the reasonable ones. And like having a, a step back for a second moment and be like, judge, like think about the implausible conclusions that their theory justifies, and like how extremist it really is. And like only when that happens do I think the benefits that you described um, come to fruition. But um, yeah, that's like what I did as the, especially as the AF, like as the AF, my senior year in ads, like I was literally just like, there are a bunch of different government obligations. We have to be able to weigh between all of them. I'm just saying that like national security is like the most foundational one for like social contracty type reasons, um, without ever saying the word social contract. Um, and you know, this like is more reasonable than these like very artificially narrow views that like, yes, digital privacy is like the one and only value that governments have to care about. And so I just could like basically obviate the entire framework debate and just be like, look, it's just like, it's just a contention debate about does security matter more than privacy? Um, and here it's just like, does it just like some loose contention debate about like, do like, you know, people who are infected with a disease, like, do they have the right to go around and continue infecting others? And like, I don't know, that seems like a very winnable contention to me. Um, but yeah, so keeping it broad, I think helps. I, and it's also worth noting that like, I don't think I've ever coached anyone uh, at Nats to read Utah in the app, except for like those circuit people that just like refuse to adapt and just like <laughs> decided to read their standard Waller 90 card uh, as their util lay util framework. And I, I can say that not reading Utah in the app is super useful because if the neg reads their prudential type arguments, you get to both say, one, no link, uh, I'm not just like pure util, and then also link turn as much of that as possible in the 1AR and put like incredible pressure on the neg. Um, and that's what I did a lot as the app is like, 
uh, I would never defend consequentialism, um, but if the negative decided to introduce it, I would just link turn it and, and then the two error would collapse the link turns later. So it's way more flexible for me because I could choose whether or not I wanted to debate that. Um, and so for strategic reasons, I really think it's, it's very valuable to not be like pure util or something like that. I don't know, I, like, I only have one other F thought, which is just like the pandemics turns civil liberties type F, which is just like, if you don't enact civil liberties restrictions sooner, they happen later and they happen worse and they happen ad hoc with less due process because there are a lot of overreaction as a result of failing to clamp down early. COVID I think provides good reason to think that failing to enact a, a very strong but relatively short-term uh, program, let's say contact tracing and, and some lockdowns or whatever early on leads to these more protracted um, situations in which the pandemic ends up either killing just like a lot more people than otherwise are necessary, or it results in these like arbitrary ad hoc and uh, largely unenforceable shutdowns that kind of spring up over time. Whereas like countries that just kind of clamped down earlier saw probably less total civil liberties violations in the long run. First, piggybacking off of what Lawrence just said, he, he did in part steal one of my suggestions. But I think there's actually two ways to go about that argument. One, I, I think they're both strong. One is the more consequentialist version of, you know, turning rights, which is like, ah, you're talking about rights, more total rights are violated in a world where we don't have public health restrictions because like people die. And if you die, you can't have exercise rights. That it deserves to, to be in a speech. If not in your constructive, it should be a response to like most negative cases that are gonna talk about rights. And then I think secondarily, separate from just like counting up number of rights, I think it can often be helpful to just sort of like discuss your conception of rights, like positive, negative, like what counts as a right and reframe what counts as being a rights violation in the first place. You know, that if, for example, you are out in the streets imposing a risk on other people, is that itself a rights violation? Like there's this more positive notion that you have the right to live free from like fear of disease not just the right to like move around, uh, then maybe people who are not following quarantine, not wearing masks, whatever, are themselves violating rights. And so it's not just like a, we maximize total number of rights long-term in a consequentialist sense, so much as like we are protecting individual liberty here and now via these restrictions. And that's also a way to make this, this turn argument viable. Uh, and I do think the app, the app should definitely be saying in their speech, some version of the app is better for individual rights because turns that link to your opponent's framework are great. Uh, I, would, I would definitely say that. Just jumping into that real quick, I think uh, for the AF, more than just having a framework that says we're in a way between a bunch of rights, having a way of doing that that's a little bit more specific, even if it's not you know, a, like a really nailed down ethical theory, can be really useful. Like really intuitive things like the harm principle you could bring into this, which is you know sort of what Jacob was just describing. And Lawrence brought it up earlier too, like very common sense restrictions that we have on rights my rights end where like harm to you begins, can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Uh, all those examples feed that harm principle intuition. And it's very easily uh, then you're brought into public health emergencies, pandemics, where the exercise of a right that would normally be fine inflicts harm on someone else. Uh, you going outside, not wearing a mask, causes someone else to be sick and they die, pretty intuitively fits within, pretty intuitively fits within that framework. And then just a few other thoughts. Uh, I have thoughts on this one for both sides, but I guess I mentioned the app thoughts now while we're on it. I think BioTerror is going to be a helpful example, especially if you're looking for something that's maybe a little bit less generic. Because as far as public health emergencies go, I think it's the other one besides just a generic pandemic that strikes me as clearly within the realm of the topic. And I think people's natural inclination is going to be to gravitate towards 
natural epidemics just given you know COVID has just happened and it's still happening. And so if you want to have just like the, the, the case with a little bit more spin, bioterror might be a place to go. I think the affling version of this is just that, you know, bioterror threats can be much more severe or sudden, and the government obviously needs the ability to respond to outside threats. Uh, like imagine it's a wartime and you, you get hit with just like a devastating anthrax attack or something like that. The government needs the ability to do it, you know, to do things in response. And then you have not only the, the, the public health aspect directly, but now you have this sort of emergency aspect of we also think, you know, rights can be restricted more often in wartime and a bioterror attack might be the sort of thing that uniquely justifies that. So I think bioterror might be a good example of an AF-leaning public health emergency you might want to use. And then the last thought I had was just about public health versus just medical ethics generally, because this distinction comes up sometimes as we're discussing medical ethics literature. And that stuff is really, really rightsy, honestly. Like as far as like people who care a lot about individual rights, like doctors are all about their rights, the Hippocratic Oath and whatnot. And so you often find very like rights-y sounding articles on medical ethics. But the topic isn't just medical ethics generally, it's public health. And you can also find articles distinguishing those two things. Like medical ethics is like individual doctor and patient, which is often very, very about individual rights in that relationship. Whereas public health is more about governments and how you affect society writ large with broad things like quarantine. And so a distinction the F might want to draw is that public health responses can have a more utilitarian-ish lens or more, uh, you don't need to say util specifically, but like a, more of a, a, a bent towards the common good than the, the medical ethics we would apply in like an individual patient and caregiver relationship. Yeah, that'll make sense to me. Um, yeah, I, I feel like similar to the NCFL's topic, like the app should win most of these rounds, like presuming like relative parity and skill I think the AF should be fine. And especially if the AF doesn't, I think, make the mistake of falling for negative tricks, getting lost in the weeds, uh, refusing to like take take a moment to surface and just like kind of paint a broad sketch of the landscape of the debate in the 2AR where they like point out the unreasonableness of the negative arguments when like taken in context and viewed outside of the context of a debate round. Like I think if the as long as the affirmative like doesn't fall prey to those things and just like sells a very straightforward argument, um, I think they'll be fine. Um, because I honestly think this is one of those topics where like the more techie you make it as the F, like the more it's easy for the judge to focus on these very narrow questions, which like could reasonably tilt negative as opposed to the bigger picture, which I think was much more just generally affirmative. Um, you know, similar to how I think I debated the 2014 nationals topic. Um, a lot of people, uh, that, that topic was something like national security outweighs digital privacy. And so the F was just like security outweighs. And like everyone read these like terror advantages, like we got to surveil people to like stop terrorism. But then like the negative just got to be like surveillance fails and just like read their needle in a haystack turns and stuff. And I just refused to do that. I was just like, generally speaking, national security is a more foundational and primary government goal compared to things like digital privacy. And so none of those turns linked. And so the negative didn't get access to what I thought were like the cooler and more debatable negative arguments. Um, and I think as long as the firm doesn't fall prey to that mistake here, I think they should be fine. Cool. Um, negative arguments then. I mean, I want to start by saying that I actually don't think it's unwinnable. I certainly think it's skewed. And I certainly think the negative is, is fighting an uphill battle. But I mean, for goodness sakes, like one of the topics a few years ago was like, there is some human right to immigration, which was like absurdly app bias. I mean, like the negative arguments were literally just racism good, but with like a few extra words, because um, like the most basic app argument was just like, states should not like 
arbitrarily restrict people from entering. Like they need good reason to like not allow them to. But that was consistent with you know thinking that there's a human right to immigration. So the negative literature was terrible. So I think as long if the negative could win rounds on that topic, I feel like they'll be okay on this topic. And I actually think the negative arguments are they're not great, but I think given the structure of LD and the way that you can execute a negative strategy, it'll still be fine. Plus Nails like literally just judged the NCFL's topic about the electoral college and NPV and somehow managed to vote for the negative a few times in favor of the electoral college. So, you know, if that can happen, I think this is, it, it's at least plausible that you could win around as a negative here. So is there an argument you'd like to start with first? Sure, I think, let's just start with the thing that you were trying to preempt is the affirmative with good reason is if I were to pick what I would think is the strongest negative argument, provided you do get access to it, it's just the turns that suggest that uh, violating civil liberties can often have backlash effects of various forms. It can make people freak out because if the government starts clamping down, then they realize there's something you know going on. And then that causes them to do all sorts of things that make the, the crisis escalate, you know, like hoarding all the toilet paper and random stuff like that. It's often unpredictable what they do. And then secondarily, it can often erode faith in medical institutions. Uh, one of the biggest issues and part of the reason, honestly, that medical institutions are so focused on individual rights most of the time, like I was saying, is because the trust of patients is like super, super important for those institutions to function. Patients have to believe their doctors have their best interests at heart, that they're looking out for them, that they're not going to walk into the, the hospital and have their organs stolen for some weird triage philosophy experiment. And it, when that drops, you know, the, the whole system just kind of fails. People don't get vaccinated because they don't trust the vaccine, stuff like that. And so you just have this massive range of negargs that more or less boil down to if our medical institutions start restricting our rights, people stop listening to those institutions, they don't trust them, they don't go to them when they're sick, and all of that makes the, the crisis a lot, lot worse. And you'll find plenty of cards on that. And it's definitely true most of the time that, you know, there's a, a good, at the very least, a, a good reason, prima facie, not to restrict rights unless you absolutely have to, because doing so can make the problem worse. I think that's a, a core negarg and the sort of like prudential reason that, you know, Lawrence, I think, is trying to, to suggest the affirmative dance around so as to not have to debate, because the empirics on that are not bad for the negative. Yeah, um, you call it the backlash turn. I called it like the trust disadvantage, um, but they're, I think, getting at the same thing, which is just like, generally speaking, the more that you kind of portray civil liberties as the enemy of public health um, and explain them as sort of diametrically opposing to each other, and then you implement what are perceived to be odious and overly restrictive um, limitations on civil liberties, the less likely those medical institutions are going to have the trust needed to actualize these sort of general uh, policies to clamp down on whatever pandemic or bioterrorism event is running rampage through society. The trust disadvantage has shown up many times before. It showed up in college policy on the legalized topic a while back when one of the areas was legalized organ sales. It showed up on the compulsory, no, the uh, presumed consent topic that Nails mentioned earlier, that if, if your organs are presumed to be uh, property of the states or they can at least harvest them from you, that will undermine trust in the medical institution, stuff like that. And I think it's been pretty popular for a while. Good evidence uh, in both terms of link and impact evidence, for sure. Yeah, as someone who read one of those organ sales apps on that topic, that the trust DA cards were a real threat. Uh, yeah. Um, in fact, even in China, one of the recent public forum topics was about physician-assisted suicide. So I just repurposed a bunch of the trust DA cards that we'd read in college policy uh, for, for briefs for them. 
because uh, again, trust literature, incredible. Uh, a few thoughts about this as, as far as the affirmative goes. Um, firstly, obviously the, the United States is a, a kind of a neglating example. We, we didn't deal also hot with the COVID epidemic. Uh, that being said, we're often, I think a bit atypical in that regard, as far as how much the public in the United States cares about individual rights you'll find, I think, a pretty clear and consistent trend as far as the evidence goes that other countries are often a lot less uh, resistant to government restrictions of the liberties for the, the common good. And so it, it's not as common, I would say, in, a, across the board in other world regions to have that level of backlash. And this topic is not US specific. And so the, the AF might argue that maybe the US is an outlier that <laughs> just has to cater to people um, who are you know, very resistant towards restriction on liberties, but that might not be true of every government. Yeah, th that said, um, there's probably a, a good deal of variation on that, but there were a number of protests uh, in the Netherlands, for example, other countries in Europe around COVID restrictions, um, more so even than in the US, like large scale protests and civil disobedience. And it's not like the East Asian countries really escaped the backlash either. I mean, China had to engage in a pretty protracted censorship campaign early on against a lot of the earlier lockdowns in Wuhan because people were just like, this is barbaric, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would imagine that while the U.S. might be an outlier in terms of the degree of the problem, I don't think we're an outlier in terms of the existence of it. And then the second thought I had was just that I, I think this argument is also, separate from whether the negative even gets it in the first place, I think this argument is also somewhat undercut by the nature of the topic, even if the negative has access to it, just because by virtue of being a prudential reason, it's really hard to prove that it applies in every public health emergency, right? Like at the very least it establishes, you know, don't violate civil liberties unless you have a real good reason to, because doing it willy nilly is gonna backlash. But if your reason isn't rights-based, but it's just like pragmatic, well then, you know, some public health emergency is going to come along where some civil liberty is important enough that even at the risk of causing some backlash problem, it's still going to be worth doing. And if it's just a matter of cost and benefits, well, then, you know, the app's kind of already where they want to be, which is to say, all I have to prove is that given the right balance of costs and benefits, there's going to be a case where this is justified, even if a lot of the time it fails. And so even the next kind of right most of the time, this topic seems to suggest the app wins as long as it's right some of the time. And a turn that's about the pragmatics is not going to, I think, prove enough. Yeah, makes sense. So uh, a second vein of negative arguments, I'm going to loosely term the sort of democracy style arguments. I think you termed this democratic backsliding in your card file, and I just called it democracy in my topic analysis. Um, but I think the sort of short version of this argument is just like, whenever disease arise, there's both the case that civil liberties are actually eroded um, for what let's say legitimate reasons, but also that public health emergencies are often used as a cover for the expansion of state policies that erode civil liberties that may not be intimately tied to um, clamping down on whatever public health emergency exists. And that saying something like a public health emergency justifies limiting civil liberties provides excellent cover for the expansion of authoritarian policies as well as for the erosion of democratic norms in particular the very individualistic democratic norms. Um, and so, you know, I think most recently people have been looking at authoritarian countries in East Asia and being like, it's not really clear that we really want to give the Chinese government more surveillance power or even Singapore, the access to those cool, um, but nonetheless terrifying robotic dogs that like walk around parks and scan people. Um, and even democracies, or at least a sensible democracies, uh, have engaged in 
perhaps worrying surveillance trends. Like I think Israel, for instance, started deploying what was originally supposed to be uh, surveillance technology intended for anti-terrorism, but then repurposed a lot of it for the purposes of public health. And a lot of these things linger after public health emergencies are, are over because it's once you know these rights are gone, it, it becomes a lot harder to get them back as opposed to just keep them from getting eroded in the first place. Um, but yeah. Yeah, this is, I think, the flip side of the this topic isn't U.S. specific uh, spin that the AF might have is for the negative, you know, the, the non-U.S. specific nature of the topic means we're also talking about governments that are like much more corrupt or, you know, <laughs> much less able to be trusted with expanded power than the United States even. And that is going to make arguments about democratic backsliding, authoritarianism, stuff like that, I think, more potent. Yeah, I think in Marshall's topic analysis, he has an argument that's kind of adjacent which is uh, something along the lines of like, while there are some particular public health emergencies that justify limitations on civil liberties, the term public health emergency is itself, as mentioned earlier, the definition is relatively vague and broad and keeping it local, uh, keeping this debate about any given public health emergency creates uh, too much latitude for the government to intervene against civil liberties whenever they want. And so maybe particular public health emergencies, let's say a subset of them that we could give another term of art. So let's say like, um, you know, just pandemics or something like that justifies limiting civil liberties, but not all public health emergencies do. And in fact, the majority of them don't. And uh, that leads to a sort of slippery slope uh, in terms of what the government can take away. But yeah, I mean, there's lots of good literature on this, uh, especially in the context of COVID. A lot of people really worried that COVID accelerated both Russia and China's surveillance technology. China, for example, can now face track people with masks. Um, used to not be able to do that. And that used to be a way that people could get away from face identification. Uh, but now China can figure out who you are, even when you're wearing a mask. So that's that's cool. Last major branch that I can think of, but if you all have got other um, arguments, we can talk about those too, uh, is just something along the lines of like radical libertarianism. I think the problem is just like libertarians, at least the real principled ones, like not the like hacks or whatever, agree that in principle, you know, some civil liberties can be limited. They just tend to think that the bar is really high, but that doesn't like imply that the resolution is false. It just implies that you know, the, the circumstances in which it can happen and the conditions under which it can happen have to be like a very narrow set of circumstances. But again, it's not clear to me that that would even prove that it's false. So like only the really radical and like hacky versions of libertarianism, which are just like individual rights are like all but absolute. Yes, I do have a right to go into my Applebee's and sneeze into your food um, while I'm sick sort of thing. Like, and, and it's not, like, I don't think it's unwinnable. Like I've certainly gone for worse versions of libertarianism, but like, again, it seems kind of awful that like that is the principled ground the negative is basically stuck with. Yeah, honestly, I, I would not knock the strategic quality of the libertarianism in C at a tournament like nationals. Uh, I think it often goes a long way. You just, you, you talk about how important liberty is and judges judges like that. I mean, that was my, that was my NC my senior year. I mean, it didn't go for it very often because going for case turns was almost always better, but you know, I was just like, yeah, rights are like basically viable. You have like an inviolable right to digital privacy, which is like odd face and absurd argument that no one accepts. And yet somehow that carried me through the tournament. So yeah, I, I don't think it's unwinnable by any means. I'm just saying that like zoomed out. Um, and if the affirmative is even remotely competent, should be able to de defeat this argument. I don't think it's very strong objectively. The, the last argument I, I would, bring up i guess is just you've got a, a lot of various like equity related issues that you see sometimes in the literature about how you know these sorts of restrictions on liberties can often be used or applied in a discriminatory fashion especially if a disease is afflicting a particular subset of the population uh, then you might see restrictions on like a particular ethnic group or a particular region of the country um, things like that uh, 
for example, what if like, you know, AIDS is declared a public health emergency and then the government starts like restricting uh, where gay people can go, right? Like obviously AIDS isn't a particularly good example because it's not transmissible <laughs> easily, but like imagine it were, for example, and then they have to identify who's likely to have it. And that might involve making determinations on, you know, various important protected factors. And obviously there's plenty of historical examples of this. Like there was court cases in the United States where they're, they, I think it was somewhere in the West Coast in California, maybe had like clamped down on like Asian Americans ability to, to travel. And that was ruled unconstitutional later. But like issues like that, you obviously have. Um, and a lot of these restrictions aren't minimal, you know, like quarantine, for example, can cause like PTSD effects, it can cause unemployment. And so there's at the very least a, a, a pretty weighty, you know, reason not to apply them in a discriminatory fashion, uh, if you can avoid it. And that's another concern for the negative that I think shows up sometimes in the literature is just that uh, expansive government authority to do things in the name of public health often gets applied uh, in nefarious ways. I don't got any other like thoughts about negative arguments. I, again, like I, I think the 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 backlash stuff is probably what I would term to be like the most true objection, um, assuming that it's even uh, legitimate negative ground in the first place. And my intuition is that the negative should read something like a two, thirty, three minute long libertarianism NC, answer a little bit of the app framework, and then just dump case terms. Because I think, despite the fact that I don't really think the negative really gets access to a lot of these more prudential reasons against restrictions of civil liberties, I think every app is just going to end up spotting the neg gets them for some reason or another. Um, and I think it's totally viable to win on that. Like, that, I mean, that's literally what happened in my senior year, where every app I debated for some reason spotted me the terrorism surveillance. Uh, link turns, except in finals, where the app was similar to mine, it just like there's some generic government obligation to prioritize national security. So I had to go for the contency, and I had not gone for an alternative. I was horribly out of practice, and I like somehow won, despite the fact that I had no idea what I was talking about, mostly just reiterating some version of taxation as theft for some unknown reason. Um, but hey, the fact that I can still win uh, proves that it's a viable negative strategy. And like that's kind of what I would do for most negs is some short libertarianism and see a bunch of case turns. Honestly, for, for this topic in particular, I think a, a pretty big amount of prep uh, that I would be doing isn't even like listing out the best affinic arguments as we've done here, but more to the effect of like the things that happen in between there, coming up with good examples or analogies or just like quippy one-liners. Yes. Because I feel like this topic is, is just like, it's too vague and too broad to give a decisive empirical answer to, and you're not going to win it on evidence quality most of the time. You're going to win it on having some line about, you know, it's rights versus liberties. We're talking about liberties here, which can be restricted or just like some random thing like that. That's going to catch the judge's ear and be like, yeah, yeah, rights versus liberties. We're only talking about liberties, obviously the affluent or something to that effect, you know, and things like that, I think, win more than people realize they do, especially in more traditional rounds. And so if I'm the AF or the NEG, I'm trying to think of examples that support my side that I think are you know, relevant topical examples, but Afro-Neg leaning ones, analogies to other rights, like we were discussing freedom of speech and religion mm-hmm. and so forth, or just like one-liners, phrases, buzzwords that sound really good. And I think a decent number of rounds can be won on, you've got like a good one-liner or analogy that you're leading your two and R and two AR with. Really persuasive reductio arguments in cross-sex especially could be very effective here, I think. Yeah, strong agree. Yeah, I guess the last thing we can talk about real quick before... Um, we wrap up here is just like some basic NSDA Nats tips. So the one that Nails just mentioned is one that I, I strongly agree with. Um, for me, a lot of preparation for Nationals my senior year, it was not cutting cards. It, it was just 
thinking about ways to phrase the same arguments everyone's going to make. Because, like, let's be honest, like, assuming, you know, your opponents are reasonable and not attempting to run to the, like, absolute margins of the topic, which, you know, will happen sometimes, but most of your opponents won't do that. You know, everyone's making the same, like, five arguments. Like, the app has, like, one argument, really, um, but just, like, worded in different ways. The negative is, like, three, and, like, two of them are even questionably negative arguments in the first place. And so everyone's saying the same thing. The, the question is just, how do you say it? Like, what makes you, your version of this argument stand out from everyone else? So most of my practice was dedicated to like, A, making sure that my presentation was good because like I'm not a particularly great natural speaker because uh, I say uh and um a lot and pause a bunch. And I had to just work that out of my presentation. And like the other thing was just like, talking with my coach after a debate round, like not about like technical things I could have done better, like shave five seconds off of this or whatever. No, like all of the conversations were just like, well, we're making this argument. How can we make it a little bit better? How can we make sure that one more judge will find this to be like a light bulb type moment or one more judge will find it to be the more gut intuitively true argument that rings like true to them despite their best attempts to be objective or like divorce themselves from their biases. Like it's it's just that sort of stuff. Like one tiny thing to help you stand out and be a little bit more memorable, um, I think is far more relevant than like cutting a slightly better card for your app or something like that. Um, I, I like personally stopped cutting cards like pretty early on into topic preparation. Cause again, like the topic that I was debating was not card intensive. It was just like, can you prove why security is more important than privacy or something? The other tip that I would give on top of uh, all of the links that I'll drop in the description where I've like talked about debating at NSD and ads and traditional debate and whatever, you can watch those on your own time. But the other tip that I would give is that for um, a lot of judges, I think like there's a, an intuition that what you wanna do is adapt to that particular judge. And in circuit, like that does make a lot of sense. Like if the judge is, for example, like very into, you know, uh, like very against conditionality, for instance, like you would probably avoid reading your counterplan conditionally. But I would say that that's a mistake at NSC Nationals for two reasons. One is there's no reliable way to know what your judge preferences are. Sure, there's a judge paradigm, but that judge paradigm is utter garbage. Um, my coach told me to use them as drink coasters back in the day. Um, they provide almost no meaningful information. And if anything, they could lead you astray because they provide you false information that leads you to adapt in poor ways. For like the most obvious example being like, rate your preference for speed on a one to 10. And it's like, my 10 is definitely not my mom's 10. And to think that I could reasonably match a speed scale to a universal one without any like grid system or metric, like what? And to be fair to the judges here, the paradigm sheet itself is also just very, in my opinion, poorly designed. I feel if- Yes. I don't know how to answer some of the questions. And I feel if someone read my answers to the questions, they'd probably get the wrong idea for what I want because some of the questions are kind of nonsensical or they like create false dichotomies uh, on a judge's preferences over things when really like both things kind of matter and it depends. Yeah, don't take much stock in them. Maybe look sort of directionally glance at them like, oh, if this person has a one on speed, right? And like, has all the way down the list, the most conservative possible answers. They're trying to tell you something. But other than that, like really don't pay attention. My favorite anecdote about the NSDA Nationals ranking stuff is I remember the first time I competed at Nationals, I was looking at this sheet and I remember seeing, it asked you like how you evaluate rounds. And one is like, I vote whoever won on the flow. One is I consider you know broader uh, sort of stylistic concerns and so forth. And then one of them was just, I vote for whoever won the most arguments. Like not whoever is winning like the, the biggest offense back to a criterion or something like that. It's like the most total arguments. And I was thinking like, who could ever possibly check that? And then that year I didn't clear. 
and ended up volunteering to judge in the in the what do you call it the middle school nationals that happens like more or less alongside it and high schoolers can judge it and i was on a panel with another judge and sure enough the the round transpired at the end of the round he went through the flow and counted up the number of contentions that were being won like af you won your first contention and the value criterion but the neg won both of their contentions and beat your third (laughs) contention so i ended up voting negative uh and Sure enough, these judges exist. Here's the thing about that, though. I'm not 100% sure that happens if they don't put that on the sheet. I feel like that's someone who was like, that's a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? Or had never judged before. It was like, oh, this is clearly the option that's easiest or appealed to them just like sort of intuitively. I'm pretty sure as of 2021, that option still yes, exists. It does. On oh, the- it, does. it does. Yes. Yeah. It's like that question I think stands out as particularly awful. And the other one that's just like, what is the role of the value criterion or whatever? And like one of them is like, it's mandatory. Like you have to have it. And the other one's like, it's not important at all or whatever. And then there's, there's another option in the middle. But like, the, I think the correct answer is it's somewhere in the middle, which is just like, if you have it, like it's good, but like it's not required. And you certainly can't win off of it, which is what the question implies. Oh, but there, I think there actually um, is a specific like, question that's like, I vote for who wins the value criterion. I think that is yeah, or something somewhere like that. The, yeah. I don't think it. I don't think it's worded explicitly like that, but it, it heavily implies that in fact the value criterion could be a voting issue, which is just like again an abhorrent view of debate. Like yes, the utilitarianism is true. Therefore, a public health emergency justifies limiting civil liberties. Like sorry, you got to win the connection there. But yeah, so uh, yeah, so point one is I would not bother adapting for the sake uh, because the information that you, is available for you to adapt to is. I would say at best useless and at worst uh, less than helpful. It is in fact actively harmful to try to adapt. I do agree with Tyson's thing, which is like, you can use it as a list of things not to do. So for example, it's like, I, I will refuse to evaluate your arguments if you like talk above a hundred words per minute, then sure, follow that. But everything else is pretty yeah, I, I, it's, This is especially true if it's a, you know, circuit debater trying to go to nationals and you see a judge, maybe you recognize and you're like, oh, this is the round where I can do things. I've seen that mm-hmm. trap happen in a bunch of rounds I've, judged at nationals and i would just suggest ignoring it treat that judge like they're another nationalist judge they know what you're doing they're not going to like think any less of you right which i think is sometimes a concern i like to basically judge nationals in character as a nationalist judge um i think it makes it makes it easier uh than trying to like apply my normal rules to kids who are trying to do like a completely different activity so yeah just ignore it especially because remember there's panels even in prelims so like i remember getting judges who I recognized from like competing at Barclay Forum or wherever, but then they're sitting right next to someone who's like 90 years old and ranked speed of one. So it's not like you're very likely to get two judges you recognize and be able to adapt anyway. So it's much easier to play towards the traditional judge and expect the other judge to follow along anyway than to do the reverse. Yeah, and there and there are some judges that like actually do like traditional debate despite having their foot in circuit. I count myself as one of them, and I would definitely not enjoy judging around in which someone was like spreading against someone who had no idea what was going on. Yeah, I'm like not gonna ever get mad that you like chose to adapt to a traditional panel because like the other thing is is just like you know let's say you do have two judges, which is very unlikely, that are sympathetic to your practices, but your opponent isn't. Like, do you really think you're gonna look all that good like dunking on someone that can't follow along with what you're saying? Like no judge finds yeah. that enjoyable. It's, it's it's actually kind of unpleasant to watch. Even those two judges will not enjoy what, what happens. They know what they signed up for and they kind of want to see it, I think. Yeah, and like, sure, there are some that really hate Nats and are just judging to like make some money or whatever. But again, like that is not a risk I would take, so. Yeah, like if you're thinking about prepping circuity stuff, it's not even worth the effort. Like there's almost a 0% chance of a round where you get to use your like Argentinian SARS plan or something. 
Incredible. Uh, so yeah, so the second reason I think it's not worth adapting is just because um, I don't think it's a particularly consistent way to adapt to judges with such wide diverging preferences. So even assuming the information available to you was perfectly accurate, I mean, you're just gonna get one judge that thinks the value criteria is a voting issue and one judge that, you know, treats it like a normal thing. So what are you gonna do? Like, I don't know, like you could, you know, say that it is a voting issue and make one judge happy and make the other judge sad, or you could, you know, not do it and make the other one unhappy. But the point is, is that I think with a judging uh, pool so diverse that it is impossible to make everyone universally happy. And so I don't even think it's worth trying because if you look at the debaters that tend to do well, not universally, but tend to do well, it's those that have the most generic appeal that can bypass these sort of individual uh, judge biases and preferences. And that sort of regardless of one's opinion on, let's say one narrow thing, like how, like what your speech cadence is, that they will walk away from the debate thinking, yeah, that was a good debater. Because those sort of holistic perceptions of how you're doing will inform their interpretation of all the other narrower things that you do. Like you can get five tons of lay debaters that like talk really fast. Like I, I talked quite fast when I was debating, probably around this speed, maybe even a little faster sometimes. And that just certainly far exceeds the average person's speaking rate at NSCA nationals. And yet like no judge like seriously penalizes me for it because the perception is, well, I'm speaking fast because that's naturally how I speak. I have a lot of arguments I wanna talk about. I wanna really point out all the flaws in someone's points. Like I'm efficiently using my time, but I wanna get as much in as possible. Whereas with other people that talk fast, it's just, you know, a lot of judges are like, well, I don't like it. You know, you're unclear, hard to understand. It's clear that you have never worked on word economy, that you are stuttering too much because you're talking too fast and that you're clearly just trying to put as many bad arguments in the flow as possible to game the system, right? And that's an, another perspective that the judge could get. But I think it's less to do with like individually how you execute that one thing, let's say the, the speaking pace and much more about holistic presentation of yourself and whether or not you sell yourself as a winning debater. And so trying to cultivate a sort of personality that is generally likable, generally appealable to most judges without having to make a lot of tweaks around the edges, I think that's going to be the much more consistent way for attaining success. Yeah, I would uh, second that. I think, especially as it gets later at that tournament in particular, I think the judges start to ask themselves, is this a debater who I would want to be called the national champion, if that makes sense? Like, I know a judge pretty well who almost always on the finals panel or semis panel, and that's essentially how they judge this, like who deserves to be the national champion? Like, sure, we'll look at what happened in the round. That's basically the question that's being asked. And so it's not about any individual thing, appealing to any individual specific preference or winning particular arguments. It is about getting off that overall sort of impression uh, at those late stages, especially, I think. Yeah. Um, any other advice for competing at NSCAs? I mean, we had our episode last year. I'll link that in the description. I gave some advice there as well, especially in the context of debating online, which hopefully all of you are used to by now. So cool. Uh, so when we come back, we'll do a brief conclusion segment. All right, everyone, uh, that's our episode. And uh, hopefully this was helpful as you think how to prep the public health emergencies topic. And again, I do wanna reiterate that um, a lot of the prep should be less like doing deep research or whatever and like cutting a bunch of cards. Um, because truthfully, like you can roll up to any traditional tournament with less than hundred pages of prep and be more than fine. But instead about thinking through how to present your arguments and making sure that you can do it in the context of a, of a debate round judged by you know these random people from all across the country. Um, so I just want to emphasize it again. Uh, but please remember to submit your episode suggestions, mailbag questions, or feedback with us at the forum that's linked in the show notes. And thanks again to Victor Briefs for sponsoring this episode. You can find them at victorbriefs.com. Um, so this week, uh, we'll do a standard media suggestion. And mine 
is this show uh, called Only Connect. Now you can find episodes of this on YouTube. There are a bunch of different fan channels that have created them. And it's a show, it airs on the BBC. And I think the reason it got famous is because there's this very famous British YouTuber named Tom Scott, who's well known for wearing the, the red t-shirt and the gray hoodie that does a bunch of educational videos. And back in the day, like a couple of years ago, Tom Scott went on this show called Only Connect. And, for, and the one episode that has Tom Scott's photo of it in the thumbnail is the one episode that has like 1.6 million views. And all the other episodes have like 30K because like people just really wanted to see Tom Scott. But Tom Scott is really good at the show because the show is really tests your uh, knowledge and not just like abstract pieces of knowledge, but the connections between them. So the show runs through four stages. Stage one is where a team of three um, is given the opportunity to find the connection or the theme between four clues that are presented. So if you can find the connection after one clue, you get a certain number of points. Then if you can find it after two, less points, three, and then four, and you find what the connection is. So like they might throw out four names and they could be like, all 19th century English writers or all like members of One Direction or all like chemical compounds with like, um, you know, on the like far left side of the periodic table or something like that. And you have to just find the connection. They're totally random. The second round is where they give you clues and you have to figure out what the fourth clue is based on the pattern. So they give you one, if you can, then two, then three, and then you get, you know, the most points if you can get after one. The third round is the only connect wall where they give you 16 uh, words or phrases. And you have to figure out the four perfect categories of four that connects them together. And there'll be lots of red herrings thrown in where they could plausibly be connected to each other, um, but, but there's only one perfect pairing and you get two and a half minutes to decide all of those. And then the final round is called the only vowels round where they give you a bunch of things that are connected together, but you have to figure out what the word is with all the vowels taken out and then the words randomly compacted together with like no real regard for the original spacing. Um, so like for, for example, the game only connect, they'll give you a clue like a, a British game show on BBC and it'll be like N, L, Y, uh, C space and N C T and the space will not belong where the only and the connection diverge. It'll just be random. And uh, truthfully, some of the most impressive like games contestants I've ever seen in my life, the game like makes me feel really, really stupid. I only get like maybe 20% of the questions because it is really, really, really hard. Um, and I think it's a, it's a show that nails in particular would enjoy. Um, yeah. I've never actually heard of that and I'll have to check it out. I was really with you, Lawrence, on those first three categories. It sounded great, and the last one just sounded like nonsense. The the last one is um, <laughs> the one where you get the like most points, and so and it's the most rapid fire. The other ones like it's really t spaced out, and like you get them a lot of time yeah. to think and reflect. And then the last one is just to it like, just seems like a different you know, game. give it the standard game show vibe. Yes, the it last is, one is kind of a sounds like a pub yeah. quiz category. Yeah, it, well, we're definitely stealing all of these for pub quiz. Oh, yes. um, <laughs> but it's really the fourth one just seems like a different game show. Um, but I'm definitely yeah, going to watch it. And so, like, it is, it's tough because you can earn, like, the bulk of the points in round four. So it's all, all the game is almost always competitive up until round four. Um, and unless, like, one team is just blowing the other team out of the water. It's a team game. So do you uh, have, like, specialists? Yeah, so for, like, so a lot of them know each other prior to coming on the show. Um, and, and they always give themselves these weird names. Uh, so like some of them are, might be called like the bartenders because they're like one thing that unifies them all is like their love for beer. But like one of them will be like historian, like there will be like a sports better and like the other will be like a, a, you know, professor of psychology or something like that. And so they try to cover as many bases as possible because you have to know stuff about like literally everything. Um, they often introduce concepts I've like never heard huh. of before. I will say I've never heard of the show, but I do, I do love uh, Tom Scott, the YouTuber that you're referencing. Oh, he's great. And so is the host. The host is Michelle Corin. Um, who is a professional poker player, and she is uh, she is awesome. Tom Scott actually did a video on my hometown once. 
Oh no, what was it called? This abandoned town where everyone had like some like weird disease or something like that? <laughs> no, no. Uh, it's a suburb of Georgia called Peachtree City. And it's notable fact about it that I guess drew Tom Scott to it is it has miles of golf cart paths intersecting everywhere. And so that's where you're from. I, cause yeah. I've seen that episode and like that's the episode where he like gets on a golf cart with a mare and they just drive yeah. around. Yeah, that one. Okay. That's my, that's my wow. town. And so you can get basically anywhere in the city on a golf cart. And so it's basically a cheap alternative to cars. You know, like I never got a car when I was a kid. I didn't get my license until I was 18, but that's cause we had a golf cart, which costs a lot less than a car. And if I needed to go to school uh, on a day, the bus wasn't running. Like for exams, I would just take the golf cart to school, park it in the so, golf cart parking lot. So there was a golf cart parking lot at your school. Yes, there's a, a separate golf cart parking lot. Uh, I remember my, my, actually my school for a while was very resistant to this. Um, I don't know why they didn't want golf cart traffic. I guess it interfered with the cars. And so they were, they were fighting putting up a golf cart parking lot for a while, but there's just too much demand for it. I, I just have a logistical question. Um, in my experience, all mm-hmm. golf carts look exactly the same. How mm-hmm. do you know which one's yours? Do you like do people paint it? Like, do they like put like a ribbon on it? Like, what do you do? There is, in fact, a number on the side that you could use that if you needed to. But I, I'd say that they're they're different enough that you can tell. Like the one that uh, I own was just like a kind of like an off reddish color. And you got some that are white, some that are green, some that are black, whatever. Uh, and then they have different um, brands and whatnot with different styles. And so like if you know the vicinity of the parking lot you parked in, you're looking, there's only going to be one golf cart with that particular shade of red. I will say if you, if you have a, a gas golf cart, I'm going to assume you're an asshole. Those things are awful. People get them because they go really fast, but like they emit, you know, emissions and whatnot. And kind of defeats the whole point. Um, it's you, you, you. If you drive a gas gas golf cart, I'm sorry if there's any of you in this audience, but you're a douche. I'm just going to assume <laughs> that about you. Get a normal electric golf cart like everyone else. I'm sorry it only goes 20 miles an hour, but that's like all you need. Um, that that's my two cents. Well, hopefully you found something interesting out of uh, learning about Nails's hometown. I did not know that's where you're from. That's kind of cool, actually. What, maybe you're in the background of one of the Tom Scott videos, just like as they're zooming past, we just see you. Um, but all right, uh, that's our episode for this week. Good luck at MSDA Nationals. And uh, again, feel free to email us or uh, find us at the form linked in the show notes before if you have any questions or comments about this episode. We'll see you next time.